0: This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For information on how you may obtain an accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree with online courses, please visit us at virtual.rts.edu.
1: Well, when you kind of you know take together uh, what we saw last week with the commands that God had given to Abram in Genesis twelve, when you take that along with what we've been talking about uh, this week, uh, the promises that God made to Abraham or to Abram, uh, when you take them both together, you see that in this commencement of the Abrahamic Covenant in Genesis chapter twelve, you have both ponderous demands being placed on Abraham and glorious promises being made to Abraham. Uh, God has clearly, out of His uh, sovereign, gracious initiative, has uh, instituted this covenant with Abraham. Uh, if you remember from last week, uh, when God called Abraham, Abraham was a pagan. Uh, God, the, the, the covenant is the result solely of God's initiative. But in that sovereignly initiated covenant, uh, God has given Abram commands uh, and He has given great promises uh, that will follow upon Abraham's obedience to those commands. You know, so on the, you know people all, you know, all the time talk about you know, what kind of a covenant a certain covenant is. And this one, as all of them, you could classify it in a couple of different ways depending on the, uh, the way that you look at it. Now, on the one hand, clearly it's a, a unilateral covenant. God sovereignly initiates it. It's His grace alone that upholds it and that drives it and that fulfills it. Uh, if, if God had not graciously and sovereignly intervened in Abram's life, then Abram would have died as he had been living in Genesis 11. He would have died as a pagan. Um, the, the covenant is entirely of God's grace and God's sovereign initiative. Um, that you can't, you can't overemphasize uh, the, the critical, uh, defining importance of God's sovereign activity. But also, you, you do have to recognize uh, that there are pronounced elements of, uh, to use a, a strong word, I suppose, of bilaterality in the covenant. Uh, Abram is given commands. Abram is, uh, his obedience is necessary Uh, The blessings that God promises in chapter 12 uh, flow posterior to Abram's leaving his country and going to this land of promise. Um, God is, uh, the covenant is entirely God's covenant, but Abram isn't uh, a passive robot within it. Uh, As we said last week, uh, this is a covenant in which Abram knows both blessings and responsibility. Certainly the, the blessings come first. Uh, without the blessings, without the uh, regenerating work of God, Abram wouldn't be able to exercise responsibility. Uh, his Any responsibility he tried to render would have no meaning. You know, it's God's grace that's uh, central. But there is also uh, this element of Abram and his response. He has a responsibility within the covenant. And... After you've read, you know, after you've gotten all the commands and the promises in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, for you math whizzes, you know that you next come to verse 4. And in verse 4, you see Abram exercising that responsibility. Uh, God has given Abram very blunt commands. You get out of your country, get out of your away from your family, away from your father's house, go to this land that I'll show you. He's given commands. He's made promises. He's promised a land, a seed, and that Abram will be a blessing. And then, verse 4, you read, So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him. And so Abram, immediately there, exercises responsibility. Uh, He was sovereignly and graciously called. He was given commands, and then he obeyed. Now, as we noted last time, Last week, the, the Abrahamic Covenant isn't revealed in its entirety just here in chapter 12. Uh, the disclosure of the Abrahamic Covenant spreads itself out over many different chapters in the Scriptures. And the next major installment, so to speak, of the Abrahamic Covenant comes in Genesis chapter 15. Uh, if, you, if you're looking for uh, you know, foundational passages about the Covenant... After chapter 12, you would go to chapter 15. But what happens in the intervening portions of Scripture between you know, halfway through chapter 12 and chapter 15 is not insignificant. Um, in a lot of ways, what happens uh, in those chapters sets the context in which chapter 15 makes sense. Um, now, as we saw just a second ago in chapter 12 verse 4 Abram showed really remarkable uh, obedience. You know to be to be perfectly frank, Abram is being called upon to surrender uh, to sacrifice far more than you or I ever have been called to do. Uh, he is being called to leave behind literally everything and he's being called to do it with far less clarity of revelation than you or I have. Uh, so Abram is having a tremendous responsibility placed upon him, but he obeys. He shows this remarkable obedience. But then, before you get out of chapter 12 even, uh, you see Abram sliding into unbelief, uh, sliding into disobedience in that way. Uh, In chapter 12, starting at verse 10, you read of this account where uh, Abram and Sarah are passing through Egypt and Abram is afraid that the Egyptians will see Sarah's beauty, and when they find out that she is his wife, will have him killed so that they can take her as their own wife. Uh, So Abram instructs Sarah to tell everyone that she is his sister uh, to avoid um, him being harmed by the Egyptians. And sure enough, the Egyptians notice Sarah's beauty. Uh, They commend her to Pharaoh. Pharaoh uh, expresses an interest in her, and both she and Abram say that she is his sister, uh, but then the Lord, it says that the Lord brings plagues on Pharaoh's house. Uh, he makes it clear to Pharaoh that Sarah is in fact more uh, or other than uh, Abraham's sister. And so the, the sinful relationship there never materializes between Pharaoh and Sarah. Uh, Pharaoh dismisses uh, Abraham from his borders with uh, some reprimand. Uh, but but what, what's notable about that episode at the end of chapter 12 uh, for our purposes this morning is that you see that already Abram is demonstrating a lack of faith in God. Uh, he's putting more confidence in his own lies and his own deception than he is placing in the protecting hand of God. In chapter 12, verse 3, God had promised to protect Abram. He promised that, um, you know, that he would... Bless those who blessed Abram and curse those who cursed him. God would be his protection. As God puts it in uh, chapter 15, he is Abram's shield. But Abram clearly is not uh, fully exercising faith in that. His faith in God's promises is wavering. Uh, In in chapter 13, uh, read where Abram and Lot uh, part ways, Uh, uh, God reiterates his promises to Abram, uh, specifically his promise of the land. In chapter 14, uh, you read of Abram rescuing Lot from Hederleomer's confederation. Uh, Abram has his interaction with Melchizedek. And then you get to chapter 15. Now, in, verses, or in chapters four, 13 and 14, you had had some notes of Abram's strengthening faith. Again, he had, um, his, his interaction with Lot, his willingness to let Lot have the choice of the land. Uh, his uh, pursuing after Lot against a a vastly superior military force of Hederleomer's confederacy, uh, his interaction with Melchizedek, all of these things in chapters 13 and 14 are showing uh, Abram's faith. He'd had a stumbling at the end of chapter 12, uh, signs of faith in 13 and 14, but then you get to chapter 15 and... Chapter 15 starts off again with a note of Abram's faltering faith. Uh, in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 15 <clears throat> Excuse me. In chapter 2 and 3, excuse me, verses 2 and 3 of chapter 15, you see that Abram pretty clearly is anxious that God will not fulfill or will not be able to fulfill his promise to give Abram a seed. Uh, Abram very clearly is struggling with the promises of God. His his heir is not his own son, but one who simply was born in his house. Uh, Abram is is struggling with this particular promise that God's made. But then in verse four, uh, God reiterates his promise to Abram. His his promise that he will give Abram a seed, uh, not just of one who's been born in his house, not just a servant, uh, but one actually born of Abraham or of Abram. Uh, God reiterates this promise, and then you get verse 5, Genesis 15, verse 5. And there, uh, God takes Abram out under the star-swollen night sky, and He tells him that his seed will be more numerous uh, than the stars in the heavens. Uh, God will fulfill His covenant promise, and He will do it on a far grander scale than Abram likely had even imagined. Uh, God uses the the overwhelming visual effect of a star-filled sky to very tenderly assure Abram that his promises are true that he will keep them and that he'll keep them in a very grand way. And you know, I think we I think we, you know, today given our the way the where we live, we we never see a a pure night sky. There's always light pollution, etc. And we never I think it's hard for us to grasp the, the overwhelming effect that this night sky would have had on Abram uh, to see you know, stars upon stars uh, as a, a clear, laid-out uh, guarantee that God will keep his promises. You know, God is, this isn't just kind of a throwaway. You know, look up at the stars. I'll give you that many kids. I mean, it' you know, would have been a, a visually stunning and impressive, in the sense of impressing upon Abram. Uh, the enormity of God's power and the enormity of His commitment to fulfilling His promise. Uh, This is a a very powerful sign and demonstration that God is giving to Abram. And in response to that, in response to uh, God's reiterating the promise and then showing the star-filled sky to Abram, in response to that, in verse 6, we read that Abram believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him. For righteousness. Now, you don't have to be a, a, a published biblical scholar to realize that that's an enormously important verse, uh, Genesis 15, verse 6, uh, that Abram believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Uh, now, in that verse, uh, very pivotal verse, there are two components, even you know, grammatically speaking uh in the, the 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 first in the first instance uh genesis 15:6 declares that god believed in the lord uh now the the verb there in the hebrew uh is the is a a hifil of amon uh the, the sense of which is uh to to stand firm uh to to make steadfast uh, in a sense if you were to translate it literally uh it would the clause would say something like that Abram made himself steadfast in the Lord or Abram made himself secure in the Lord uh you know at, at this point Abram is being confronted very clearly on the one hand by what seems to be a physical impossibility uh, as he presents to God in his uh words you know the first part of the chapter you know he, he's an old man. His wife's past childbearing age. He has no children. The only you know, the heir in his house is a a servant. Uh, they, on the one hand, Abram is confronted with what seems to be a physical impossibility, and on the other hand, he's confronted with the promise of God that is completely to the contrary. Um, and it, you know, faced with those two options, so to speak, uh, Abram makes himself secure in the terms of the the Hebrew grammar there, he makes himself secure in the Lord. He holds steadfastly to what God has said rather than to what the rest of reality might tell him. Uh, That's the sense in which he makes himself steadfast in the Lord. He he holds to God's promise in spite of what would be contrary appearances. That's the the first part of the statement there in 15.6, that Abram believed in the Lord or, more literally, that Abram made himself steadfast or made himself secure in the Lord. Now, the second part of the, the, the verse there is that you know, uh, Abram believed in the Lord and the Lord accounted it to him for righteousness. Now, that verse is the, the first occurrence in the Scriptures of the verb chashav, uh, which is... Uh, in this instance it come, instance comes in the call imperfect and it's translated as accounted or i think the the ESV has it as counted um some versions have reckoned you know, that's that's the the general way in which the, the verb is translated and although it's the the first occurrence of the verb uh in the the hebrew scriptures it's far from the last occurrence you know, it occurs a number of other times in the old testament particularly a number of times in the Pentateuch, and so from the um, the occurrences of it throughout the Scriptures, you can get a pretty clear sense of the the full connotation of the verb. And you know, speaking in terms of that, the the full meaning, the connotations of the verb, uh, it always speaks of uh, accounting something to someone that that person is not in and of himself. Uh, it's, uh, it's accounting in the sense of declaring something to be something that it's not, uh, something that it isn't uh, inherently in itself. And so you know, given that more nuanced meaning of Hashav, the sense of 15.6 is that God is accounting to Abram a righteousness that he didn't inherently possess himself. In a sense, he's, he's declaring him to be something that he's not um, outside of God's declaration. You know, now, you know, certainly we, we know that theologically. You know, we, we know that uh, God justifies his people by declaring them to be righteous when they don't have their own righteousness. He gives them uh, Christ's righteousness. And so, We know theologically that when God uh, accounts Abram's Faith to him for righteousness, that he's given him a righteousness that is not inherently uh, possessed by Abram beforehand. We know that uh, theologically, but it's important to note that that's also the grammatical force of the declaration here in 15.6 as well. Uh, It's not just something that we put on the text because of our theological system. Uh, It's not something that Paul reads into the text later when he uses it uh, both in Romans and Galatians. It's something that even... uh, in the Hebrew grammar uh, can be found in the text uh, even if you're if, if you have no knowledge of the scriptures and all you have is a knowledge of Hebrew and you're reading through the scriptures when you come to Genesis fifteen six, just from the grammar uh, you grasp that Abram is believing God and because of that belief God is giving Abram a righteousness that he does not possess in and of himself uh, He's not seeing Abram's faith and thinking, oh, well, look at that, he's righteous. Uh, he's taking the faith and because of it, giving him a righteousness that is not his own. Um, he hasn't deserved or merited that righteousness in any sense. And that, that, that fact seems to me, I mean, you, you could probably teach an entire course on the, the implications of that, but uh, it seems to me we'll, we'll limit ourselves to just about three observations on that, uh, what we, we draw from that in that verse in 15.6. First of all, it, it makes clear to us uh, the, the singular and the solitary role of faith in justification. Now, there, you know, using a later theological term there, you know, the 15.6 says that he was accounted righteous, but we know that uh, that's what justification is, is accounting us as righteous. Um so you, we, we see the, the sing, singular and solitary role of faith in justification. You know, in terms of the solas of the Reformation, this is the, the sola fide of the Reformation, uh, that this justification is by faith alone. And it, it's something, you know, in keeping with the, the reformational theme there, this is something that John Calvin in particular uh, dwells on at some length, both in the Institutes and also in his commentary on Genesis, um, the, in a sense, the, the location of this declaration of righteousness, the fact that it comes here uh, in chapter 15, verse 6. Uh, because up until this point, Abram has been living a life, ever since uh, God had called him, he's been living a life of pretty profound faith. You know, we pointed out a couple minutes ago that uh, Abram has had some certainly had some falterings in his faith. He had the the whole debacle in Egypt with his wife saying she was a sister. Uh he ha- has had these uh, uncertainties at the beginning of chapter 15, but all that aside, Abram has been living a life of profound obedience and profound faith. Uh, even when he has stumbled in Egypt, even when he has had some uncertainty here in chapter 15, we still have to remember you know, geographically speaking, where he stands when he has these falterings. He stands in a country far removed from his homeland. Uh, he is constantly exercising faith and obedience uh, by leaving and following God where God leads him. Uh, he, he stumbles in Egypt, but he's in Egypt because he's following God's command. Uh, even his failings come within a context of uh, overarching obedience and faith. Um and then when you get into uh certainly in chapters thirteen and fourteen, as we said a minute ago, you see other uh examples of Abram's faith. So while there are admittedly falterings, Abram is living a life of obedience and faith. Uh Calvin uses strong language. He he says that Abram's life up to this point has been, in Calvin's words, spiritual and almost angelic. As uh Calvin puts it in his Institutes. You know, so, Abram has been living a profound life of obedience and faith. Um, in a manner of speaking, Abram has many works, many obediences uh, that he uh, would be able to offer in his defense. But yet still, why is he counted righteous in chapter 15, verse 6? He's counted righteous and he's justified Because of faith. Now, it's not as if Abram is justified by faith because there's no other thing that can justify him. It's not as if he doesn't have any works. It's not as if he doesn't have any obedience. He has many good works. But even in the presence of much tangible obedience, justification still comes by faith alone. Uh, It's not works. It's not obedience. uh, It's not any sort of uh, good thing in man uh, that brings about justification. Justification is by faith alone. Now, certainly that is you know, it's not to imply that prior to 15.6, uh, Abram never has believed in God. That's not what the passage is saying. It's not saying that this is the first time that God has looked at Abram and seen him as righteous. You know, the point of the declaration being put here, it seems to me, uh, the point of this, the declaration being here in chapter 15 and not back in chapter 12 uh, is to be the, the, the point seems to be the simple and rather powerful fact uh, that even at this point, nothing has been added to Abram's faith that has any bearing on his justification. Uh, that seems to be the point that the Scripture is making by placing that uh, at this point in Abram's relationship with the Lord. Uh, even at this point, even after so much obedience... Nothing that Abram has done has added anything to the ground of his justification. His justification still is entirely by faith. Uh, Certainly that's the the testimony of the Scriptures throughout, that the the justification of the people of God, the justification of the covenant of grace, comes wholly and entirely by faith. So that's the, the first observation that I think presents itself to us uh, from genesis fifteen six it it impresses upon us the centrality uh, of faith in justification really the the sole foundation of justification being in faith uh, the The second observation that I think you can make from from that verse uh, is it, it makes it pretty clear that this uh, justification or this righteousness of abram uh, that it is entirely of god 's grace uh, Speaking in terms again of the solos of the Reformation, that would be your sola gratia of the Reformation—that uh, salvation is by grace alone. Um, you know the the verse here, you know Genesis 15:6, puts it pretty clearly and simply that Abram has received righteousness, and he's received righteousness because of faith. Um, now, you know, we saw a minute ago that. Even the language of the verse shows that Abram is being accounted as something that he is not in and of himself. But even lying in back of that, you know, even in getting to the point of having faith, which is then rewarded with his incommensurate righteousness, even to that point, even the getting to the point of faith has been entirely of God's grace. The The, the fact that uh, the, the faith that Abram has exercised, uh, this faith that has brought the righteousness, uh, has been a faith in God's promise that he will give Abram a seed and will greatly multiply that seed. Uh, you know, in, in the specific setting of Genesis 15, that's the faith, uh, that's the, the promise in which Abram is standing firm. Uh, the promise that God would give him a seed and he would multiply that seed. That's the, where Abram's faith is coming into play. Now that promise, as we saw, is being pressed upon Abram both verbally in God's reiteration of the promise in chapter 15 verse 4 and also visually in the, the display of the star-filled sky in verse 5. You know, so Abram is exercising faith in the promise of the seed. Uh, that promise is being pressed on him both verbally and visually. And both of those reiterations of the covenant promise have come about because of what? They've come about because of Abram's doubt. Abram had had questions in verses 2 and 3, and that uh, doubting sort of question, that uncertain question, has elicited from God a verbal reiteration and a visual sign, and that reiteration and sign from God has pressed the promise on Abram that has led to his faith, that then has been rewarded with righteousness. Uh, If you kind of see where I'm going with that, all of this has begun with Abram's doubt. Uh, Abram's doubt is what he has had to offer, and to that doubt, God has given reassurance, and through that reassurance has enlisted Abram's faith, and to that faith is given righteousness. So there there, there is no point in this entire process at which Abram has had anything positive to contribute. Uh, Even the faith uh, that he... Uh, displays there in verse six is a faith that God essentially has drawn out of him uh, through the uh, through his verbal reiteration of the promise and his display of the star filled sky. Now, uh, even you know, uh, the the grace of God is seen not only in the fact that He gives righteousness to faith, but is also seen even prior to that in the fact that He Himself has given the faith. Uh, Genesis fifteen six I think presses that upon us that. Uh, All of Abram's redemption is entirely of God's grace. Uh, If if you're reading through uh, chapter 15, when you get to verse 6, it's pretty clear that the faith that Abram has has been given him by God. Uh, God's given him the faith and he's given righteousness to that faith. So in uh, 15.6 you have that um, justification is holy by faith. Uh, that God's uh, redemption, His His uh, work in Abram, is also entirely of grace. And then the the third uh, observation on fifteen six, I think, uh, is worthwhile to make, uh, is uh, you really in that verse, the in a sense, the the hope of the gospel kind of breaks out into the scriptures. Uh, there has been a Pretty tangible, it seems to me, as you read through Genesis, a pretty tangible shroud of despair that has hung over humanity ever since the fall. You have uh, certainly you've read of you know, men prior to Abram who have been considered, have even been considered righteous in God's sight. Uh, you, read of, you read of Enoch in chapter 5, verses 21 through 24. It says that he walked with God. Uh, we know, we discussed it some, in some detail, Noah. Um, In in chapter 6, we saw how he found grace in the eyes of the Lord and he even was described as a just man in Genesis 6-9. But still, there had never been prior to this such a clear um, explanation, so to speak, of God's economy in salvation. There had never been something so clear as this declaration that Abram believed a promise and because of that belief, God counted him as righteous. Um. There, this is the, the first instance of God so clearly revealing what you might call the method of His redemption. Uh, that he, you know, He's promised that He'll turn the hearts of His people. He's promised that He'll redeem His people, that He'll maintain the seed of the woman. He has made all these promises, and this is the first instance that we get of a pretty clear in, indication of how He's going to do that. He's going to give His people faith, and to that faith, He's going to give a righteousness that they don't deserve. Um, it's it's a, pretty, a pretty startling declaration in that sense uh, when, um, and when God declares Abram to be righteous. You know, we've known ever since Adam uh, that all men are in sin, uh, none are righteous, but here we see that Abram uh, is declared to be righteous um, because of his faith. Now, those are just you know, a couple of uh observations on uh some of the, the directions you can head in um with Genesis 15 6. It shows us the importance of faith, it shows us uh the centrality of God's grace, and it also gives us, in a sense, the first clear revelation of God's uh gospel method, if you want to put it that way, of redeeming his people and of keeping. And fulfilling the promise that he had made back in the garden to maintain a people and to turn their hearts to him. Um, now that uh, you know the the verse also goes on Genesis fifteen and six also as I indicated a minute ago goes on to be important in the New Testament. It's used uh, at least twice by Paul uh, in Romans four he, he uses it fairly extensively and keeps referring to it repeatedly throughout the chapter. Uh, he refers to it and argues from it again in galatians three six and then even in the book of James uh James makes use of genesis fifteen six in james two twenty one to twenty three um, so that the verse is is clearly by the New Testament author seen as being a pivotal point in god's uh work and in his revelation of his covenant and we'll we'll come to some of those passages later when we're looking at the New Testament. Um, but for the time being, we'll move past verse 6 and go to verse 7, um, because when you get into verse 7 of Genesis 15, you know, verse 6 obviously has been critically important, Abram believes and is counted as righteous, but when you get to verse 7, you're even then just on the cusp of another passage that's critically important. For covenant theology. Now, you know, in verse 6, God, uh, or Abram had believed God, that faith had been counted as righteousness. And then in verse 7, God again reminds Abram of who he is. Uh, in verse 7, Abram, or God says to Abram, He says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And so there, you God is subtly shifting the direction of his interaction with Abram. You know, in verses 1 through 6, the point of attention, in a sense, had been the promise of a seed. Abram was uncertain how God was going to provide this seed. Was his heir going to be a servant? That sort of thing. Uh, the focus had been on the promise of a seed. And you know, God had reassured Abram. Abram believed, counted as righteous. But then in verse 7, God shifts it to the land promise. Uh, You notice there he he describes himself as the Lord who brought him out of Ur the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. So there's a a different aspect of the covenant uh, to which God turns Abram's attention here. And in response to that, in response to God's uh, bringing back up this land promise, Abram asks God a question. In verse 8, Abram says, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it. Now, you have to admit that on the surface of it, that's an extremely presumptuous question. Uh, God has confirmed to Abram his promise of a seed. Abram believed it. Then God has reiterated his promise of a land. And then in response, Abram has essentially asked God how he can know that he is trustworthy, uh, how he can be certain that God is honest in his promises and that he's powerful enough to fulfill them. You know, Abram asks a, a very, very bold question of God here in verse eight. As we've already noted, certainly Abram has been showing faith along the way. I mean, he's left everything behind. Uh, he's a, a childless old man in a foreign land. Um, Abram very clearly believes in God, but yet he still is asking profoundly important questions. Uh, he's, it's, it's certain that Abram has faith, but he also is in need of assurance. Um, you think of the language of the New Testament uh, of the disciple calling out, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. It's the same sort of question here from Abram. Uh, the question that he asks in verse 8 is not a question of abject doubt or unbelief, It's a question asking for assurance. Abram clearly believes the Lord and he's pleading in verse 8 for assurance. Uh, He's not asking this question before he leaves Ur to convince him that God's worth believing. He knows that God's worth believing. The fact that he's standing where he's standing is evidence that he does. He's asking for assurance. Now it seems to me that you know before we go any further into chapter 15 it's important uh to realize that nature of Abram's question what he's asking for is assurance um as you are about to find out and as y'all probably already know you know in the rest of chapter 15 God does some wonderfully profound things and it's important i think to to realize and to, to come to terms with the fact that he's doing all of these things to assure Abram of his promises. Uh, that he's doing these things to assure Abram of the covenant. Now on the one hand, I think that, that uh, really the, the whole scenario playing out here in chapter 15 shakes our facade of self-confidence. Uh, even those who have dedicated their lives to following God, even those who have demonstrated their faith by sacrificing everything, even they have moments of vulnerability. Uh, even Abram here is struggling for assurance and is pleading for assurance. Now this, I think, has, can have a, a particular sort of humbling effect on men who are going into or in the ministry. Uh, kind of the assumption is that if you've dedicated your life to God's service, you ought not struggle with assurance. Um, I think Abram certainly would give the lie to that thought. Not everyone in the ministry struggles with assurance. Some men do in a very profound way. Some men not at all. Some men fall somewhere in between. It's not a a uniform experience. But men in the ministry, and some of y'all might be some of those men or might prove to be some of those men at some point, men who do struggle with assurance uh, oftentimes are stigmatized as if it's wrong to have given your life to God's service and be in uh, a position of ministry to His people and then yourself struggle with assurance. I think clearly in the example of Abram here, we see that it's possible, it's profoundly possible to lay down everything in God's service and yet still have moments of aching vulnerability. I still have moments when you have to cry out pleading for assurance. I think that... um, it's important for us to come to terms with whether we are one who struggle with assurance or whether we're not in our treatment of our brethren who do. Uh, It's it's an entirely possible scenario. And on the other hand, as we see what unfolds from this point forward, uh, we see the crouching condescension of the God of the covenant. Uh, He stoops to give His people an assurance that really, you know, in a manner of speaking, they really ought not need. Uh, God already has given Abram ample assurance of all of his promises. But still here he does these profoundly important things in the rest of chapter 15 simply to assure this old man that he will keep his promises. Uh, There is uh, seemingly no length to which God will not go to assure his people uh, of the surety of his promises. Uh, God is doing all of these things that we're about to look at that we're about to consider. God is doing all of them uh, to take away the doubt that's in Abram's heart. As, you know the the assurance that God gives to Abram here is a, a, a remarkable assurance, indeed. Now, if you you know, look through the you know, the rest of chapter fifteen, you know starting there at uh, verse nine. Now, most of y'all have been through classes where you probably covered have covered these verses in uh, great detail, and you probably can anticipate a lot of what I'm going to say. But you know, for the, for the most part, we also have to recognize that in these verses, in verses nine through twenty-one of chapter fifteen, uh, there are layer. There's layer upon layer of both cultural and chronological differences that make this passage eminently confusing uh, and uh, really inaccessible in a lot of ways uh, to a lot of people. People tend to just kind of pass over it as you know another sacrifice, another listing of people groups with strange names. Um, it's uh, it's important uh, you know to, to to come to terms with what's going on there rather than just uh, pass over it, which most people tend to do. Now in In verse 9, in verse 8, God has asked Abram the question, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? And then in verse 9, God gives Abram instructions. He tells Abram to collect five different animals. The first three of them, a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old goat, and a three-year-old ram, are all, pretty clearly there, three years old. Three years old... Uh, would have been the age at which an animal was considered fully grown, uh, fully mature for use in ritual. Um, and in addition to the three 3 year old animals, he also collects two birds. And then in verse 10, Abram actually collects these animals and it, it's clear that he, he knows what to do with them. God doesn't uh, have to give him a lot of detailed instructions. Abram knows what to do. He gets the animals and he Uh, the larger ones at least, uh, the larger three-year-old animals, Abram cuts in half uh, right down the middle of the animal. He then lays the severed halves opposite of each other, uh, essentially making a a sort of aisle down the middle of the slaughtered beasts. Um, Abram does this, he lays out the animals, and then he sits and he waits in verse 11. Uh, He sits and he waits for something more to happen. And as he's sitting and waiting, in verse 12, Abram falls into a deep sleep. And as Abram is in this deep sleep, in verse 12, we read that a horror and great darkness fell upon him, as the verse says. A horror and a great darkness. Now that can seem a little bit odd, uh, you know what, what exactly is meant by horror and great darkness, but the the language that's used in the Hebrew, uh, imah shikah gedolah. The uh, the the words being used there when they're used in the scriptures, when they're used elsewhere in the Old Testament, uh, they're used to refer to the presence of God. Uh, what is translated as horror and great darkness, uh, elsewhere is used. Uh, to refer to God's presence. So, while Abram is in this deep sleep, essentially, God comes to him. And God does two things when He comes to Abram. First of all, God gives Abram a verbal revelation. Uh, You get the bulk of that verbal revelation in verses 13 through 16. Now, in verses 13 through 16... Essentially, God is telling Abram that even though uh, his promises are certain, even though his promises will certainly come to pass, there is going to be a temporal interval before the earthly fulfillment of those promises is experienced. Uh, to To be perfectly blunt there, God is forewarning Abram of the Egyptian captivity of the Israelites. Uh, he tells Abram that his descendants will be enslaved for 400 years in a foreign land. There in verse 13. Uh, then in verse 14, and again in verse 16, uh, God tells Abram that after uh, that amount of time has passed, after those four centuries have passed, Abram's descendants will be brought out again and brought to the land of promise. You know, so God makes, he, he gives Abram this verbal revelation and assurance that even though Abram isn't seen the earthly fulfillment of the promises, they are coming. They are certain. God even knows the timeline uh, in which they will occur. And God even gives Abram the reason for this 400-year delay. God tells Abram uh, that this delay will occur because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. There in verse 16. Now, down in verse 21... You see that the Amorites, the Amorites, they are one of the nations that currently live in the Promised Land. Uh, but here in verse sixteen, God is seems to be using uh, the Amorites as sort of representative of all of the nations uh, that are then inhabiting the land of promise. So essentially, God is saying to Abram that his descendants will spend centuries in chains because God still has work to do amongst the current inhabitants of the land of promise. And I think that um, we probably need to, on the one hand, at least recognize the possibility uh, that at least part of this work that God still has to do amongst the Amorites might very well have included the salvation of some of the Amorites. Um, God had, you know, back in chapter 12, as we saw, God had promised Abram uh, that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And I don't think it's coincidental that in chapter 14, God had brought three specific Amorite men into contact with Abram and had blessed these men through Abram. Uh, God had been showing even there in chapter 14 uh, that God was bringing blessing to the Amorites through Abram. You know, so while there's certainly nothing explicit said in the Scriptures that there was any belief amongst the Amorites, uh, it's not, I, think, I think we have to say that it's at least not out of the realm of possibility uh, that God's work amongst the Amorites in this intervening four centuries uh, might have included the redemption of at least some of those people. But for the most part, obviously, uh, the intervening time would be used for the hardening of the Amorites. for bringing them to the fullness of their depravity, uh, in a sense making them prepared uh, for the judgment that God would bring upon them. And uh, in all of that, uh, God is assuring Abram uh, that although things might seem to be moving slowly by his standards, by Abram's standards, God is at work and there are reasons for his timeline. Uh, he will bring the promise to an earthly fulfillment in 400 years, and he is waiting 400 years for a purpose. You know, so, 400 years into the future, when Abram's descendants enter the land of promise, they'll go and they'll take it as instruments of God's judgment. Uh, they will take it from men whose iniquity had been made full. That's the, the, the biggest chunk, so to speak, of Abram's, or the, the verbal revelation that God gives to Abram. Uh, that uh, you know, as seen in this, you know, the foretelling of the the Egyptian enslavement and the uh, hardening of the Amorites, we see that God's purposes are coming to pass, and that He has a purpose in His ordering of them. But then, down in verses, the second half of verse eighteen, down through verse twenty, God gives a little bit more verbal revelation uh, in those verses. God lists the ten nations that at that point inhabited the land that He's going to give to Abram's descendants. Now, it can seem to be just a listing of nations that doesn't seem to have too much to it. But implicit in this listing of the nations is a clear claim on God's part to possess a universal authority. A God is God of all the earth. Uh, His purposes are as determinative for the Amorites and the Girgashites and all the other ones listed. His purposes are as determinative for them as they are for the Israelites. Uh, His will controls uh, the future of these pagan nations every bit as much as it controls the future of Abram's descendants. Furthermore, the land that appears to belong to these mighty nations actually is God's land. Uh, It's His to dispense as He sees fit. If he wants the Israelites to have it, they'll have it. If he wants them to wait 400 years to have it, they'll wait 400 years, then they'll have it. Uh, God is the God of all the earth, and all of the earth is literally His. Uh, God, in just what seems to be a somewhat casual listing of nations, God is very subtly asserting His worldwide dominion. Uh, For the the benefit of one people, for the benefit of the descendants of Abram, uh, for the benefit of His people... God is going to move all of the earth. He's going to move all of history in order to give them what He wants to give them. And when you take those two units, so to speak, of verbal revelation together, you realize the power of this verbal revelation that God's giving in Genesis 15. When we think about the latter portion of Genesis 15, our attention most often goes to the covenantal ceremony that we'll look at here in a minute. But we we shouldn't downplay the power of this verbal revelation. Uh, Abram has come to God with this aching question, this longing to know that God is both willing and able to keep His promises. And in response to that question, God has kind of casually, it seems, offered Abram this view of history, this view of the nations, that leaves no doubt that God is able to fulfill His promises. All of uh, the nations all of the course of history, all of it is being moved in accordance with God's covenantal purposes. Uh, God clearly is able to give Abram the land that he's promised. Uh, Just because God's promises might seem to be forgotten doesn't mean that they are. God still is in control and he's still faithful to his promises. Uh, Just because God's people are in chains doesn't mean that their God is in chains too. Uh, It never has and it never will. That's what God is communicating to Abram, uh, that he is sovereign over all the earth. Uh, that was certainly uh, an encouragement to Abram, uh, you know, to know that God was able to do all of these things. And it's, you know, an encouragement even for us today in the church. You know, we are members of a church that has been promised worldwide victory, but when we look around us, seems in most cases to be increasingly marginalized. Uh, in a, in a lot of ways, God's promises uh, to humanize can seem to to human eyes, not to humanize to human eyes, uh, can seem to be in peril. But the the understanding that God is giving Abram of His power and His control of history, it shows us that even when His purposes seem to be in the most peril, He still is in control. Uh, this is a very powerful. Uh, understanding of history and of God's power uh, that God is giving to Abram in this verbal revelation here in chapter 15. So while we'll certainly spend time on the the covenant ceremony, and we shouldn't downplay or neglect this verbal revelation. These are grand promises that God has given to Abram and uh, promises that really shape and encourage our uh, Christian lives even today. Um. Any questions at that point? Well, we uh, before we rather than get into the covenant ceremony and then stop two or three minutes into it, we'll just we'll go ahead and break there. And when we come back next week, we'll look at the uh, the covenant ceremony there in chapter fifteen.
0: The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.